and I'm going to read from Psalm 147, Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, how good it is to sing praises to our God, how pleasant and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem, he gathers the exiles of Israel, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Extol the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people with, within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends his command to the earth his word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. Amen. Thank you, John. Josephine Butler was a truly remarkable woman. She gave her adult life in the service of Christ to protect abused women and abused children. And since she died, her reputation has grown. She's lauded by feminists as one of the first women to support uh, women's education and women's suffrage. But feminism, as we know it today, had nothing whatever to do with her motivation. And for that, we must look to her faith in Christ. Many have written about her, and that's a picture of my little library that I've been reading over the last few years. But uh, many of the authors fail to understand her faith. And uh, an excellent exception to this is the uh, recent book by Jane Jordan, just published last year, uh, which is very fair, although I don't think the author is necessarily a, a Christian herself. She's very sympathetic to Josephine Butler's Christian faith. Josephine's life was a great adventure, but it was not a bed of roses. Few experienced the tragedy and sorrow that she knew, yet these very experiences gave her an overwhelming sense of love for women, caught up in prostitution. The experiences have also led to her having huge determination, courage and strength to carry on her campaigning 
despite massive opposition. And throughout her life, she nearly died on several occasions, either from serious illness or from the physical attacks of her opponents. She traveled enormous distances in her campaigning work throughout the UK and Europe. She wrote many books in English, French, and other languages. And she was to become a woman who changed the Western world. And she put all her intelligence, astuteness, charm, and practical wisdom at the service of Christ. Now, her work carried out overseas was truly astonishing, but tonight I'm only going to look at uh, the work that she was involved in in the United Kingdom. She fought to repeal state-regulated prostitution, and she won. And, of course, today there are calls for it to be brought back again. And the protections for children, which she fought so long and hard for, were put on the statute book. And we still have many of the same laws today which she secured over 100 years ago. Well, let's have a look at Josephine's background in her early life. Josephine Elizabeth Gray was born in 1828 at Millfield near Wooler in Northumberland. And the house where she was born is actually no longer standing. That's all you can see of it there. There's a new house built on the old one. The Greys were a prominent border family. And one branch of the family were the Earls Grey of Howick. And the second Earl Grey was the famous Whig Prime Minister. Josephine was the seventh of ten children born to John and Hannah Grey. There were three sons and seven daughters, and one sister died in infancy and one brother died at sea. And her mother was a descendant of an ex exiled Huguenot family which settled in Annick after having uh, fled France due to persecution following the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685. John's Gray's father died when he was eight years old. John was given responsibility uh, when he was very young. Uh, his mother Mary depended on him, and when he was 18, he took over the whole running of the estate. And John started reading the Bible when he was recovering from typhoid. And uh, when he recovered, he resolved to have family prayers every evening. Until his dying day, that was his broken, unbroken practice. No day ended without assembling his family and household for an act of worship. John Gray was an active campaigner for the abolition of slavery and a personal friend of Thomas Clarkson, a close colleague of Wilberforce. Josephine said of her father, and remember the word liberal uh, has a connotation also of freedom, and that's the way she was using the word. What an education I had of my noble father. An anti-slavery man, a liberal, a true lover of liberty, a free churchman of wide sympathies and called to constant crusades against tyranny. She recalled how her father would tremble and his voice would break as he read out the distressing reports of the hideous wrongs inflicted on slaves, including the way in which women slaves were abused by their male masters. John Gray spent a great deal of time studying scientific methods of agriculture and he put these ideas into practice and his estate prospered. And he became a leading agricultural expert in the north of England. And he was a kindly landlord, and his workers were paid more than many. And it was, his father, it was her father's interest in politics and his agricultural expertise which led to many visitors coming to stay in the family home. 
They came from Sweden, Russia and France and many other places. And there were constant discussions in the uh, living room on a whole variety of topics. And Josephine sat there listening to them, the only women, woman in the company. Now in 1833, the same year that slavery was finally abolished, John was appointed manager of the Greenwich Hospital Estates in Northumberland. And those covered large areas, both north and south of the time. And profits from these estates, linked to the London Hospital, were used to the, for the maintenance of disabled seamen from the Royal Navy. Now the family moved uh, to a much larger house, which they had built for them, at Dilston near Corbridge, and they moved in 1835. The house is still standing today, and it's used as a care centre for the mentally handicapped. Josephine was particularly close to her sister Harriet, who was two, young, two years younger than her. And uh, Josephine was seven when they moved to their new home at Dilston. And she and Harriet only spent two years in school, uh, in a school in Newcastle. And she had a Christian governess, but the children were also homeschooled by their parents. Her father read the Bible to them every day, and uh, they assembled for family devotions. And every day also, Josephine's mother would assemble the children for the reading aloud of some solid book, as it was put. She would then question the children to make sure that they'd understood it. And this is a picture of Josephine painted by her mother. Both her parents had a great love of reading. Her father read uh, Sir Walter Scott's novels to female servants whilst they were sewing. And before the family left Millfield, every tenant on the estate, every labourer and every shepherd could read and write. And he set up a school for children and a night school for adults. The Gray family were well provided for. They had servants and the family mixed with Northumbrian gentry. Uh, they attended the formal county balls at Annick, uh, which in the 1840s were little different uh, from the ball set in 1811 in Jane Austen's book, Pride and Prejudice. Despite all this, John Gray led a very simple lifestyle. He never shielded his street, uh, children from uh, meeting those less fortunate than themselves. Injustice and suffering were routinely talked about in the family home. Josephine uh, talked to her father about the great evils of slavery, and he, she used to go riding with him uh, to view the estates, and he used to talk to her about the conditions of farm laborers. Josephine's parents had a firm Christian faith, and as a young girl, Josephine didn't want to stake her soul on a faith received at second hand. She felt that she couldn't go to her parents uh, to talk about her doubts because she felt that they had such a firm faith. Now, although the family were from a Methodist background, when they moved to Dilston, they seemed to have attended uh, St. Andrew's Parish Church at Corbridge, uh, which is only two miles away from their home. And Josephine felt that the minister, though an honest man, couldn't help her with her doubts. She was deeply aware of the suffering in the world. and her late teens, this was acutely on her mind. What is the meaning of life? Why does a loving God allow such suffering in the world? She suffered a major crisis of her soul. It became a matter of life and death with her to know something of certainty with God. And she began to pray. Josephine said, I spoke to him in solitude as a person who could answer. I sometimes gave whole nights to prayer because the day was not sufficiently my own. It was the desire to know God and my relation to him. 
Later on in life, Josephine wrote about her conversion. I look back to the years when my soul was in darkness on account of sin. I could see no God, or such as I could see appeared to me to be an immoral God. Does he look down from his eternal order of heaven, an indifferent spectator? Now, there were two events which appear to have made a very great impact on Josephine. The first was to see the dreadful potato famine in Ireland in 1847. She was over there to visit her brother. The second was to see the body of a dead man who had committed suicide in Dipton Wood. For one long year of darkness, Josephine said, the trouble of heart and brain urged me to lay all of this at the door of God, whose name I had learned to love. I dreaded him, I fled from him, until grace was given me to arise and wrestle as Jacob did with a mysterious presence who must either slay or pronounce deliverance. And then the great questioning again went up from earth to heaven. God, where art thou? Where art thou? Why is it thus with the creatures of thy hand? I fought the battle alone in deep recesses of the beautiful woods and pine forests around our home. For hours and days and weeks in these retreats, I sought the answer to my soul's trouble and the solution of its dark questionings. Looking back, it seems to me that the end must have been defeat and death had not the Savior imparted to the child wrestler something of the virtue of his own midnight agony when in Gethsemane his sweat fell like great drops of blood to the ground. So Josephine was converted when we're not quite sure between the ages of 18 and 19. And Josephine's brother, Charles, went to Durham University to study. And his classics tutor was George Butler. Josephine met George uh, when she went down for her brother's graduation. And their relationship developed over a year. And they had many common interests, including horse riding. Josephine, like George, was extremely bright. Uh, He was made a fellow of Exeter College, Oxford, before he had even graduated. George's father was Dean of Peterbrook, and he had been the headmaster of Harrow. And George was soon to become a senior master in a public school. And it was very common in those days for teachers in public schools, uh, particularly if they were senior teachers, to be ordained to the Church of England ministry. And George himself was ordained later on. Josephine and George became married in January 1851. Josephine uh, wrote of her amazement that a fiancé of, uh, who was all of two and thirty could still be playful and merry. She wrote, He has a great deal of quiet fun about him. I never knew anybody of his years so young in health and feelings. He is just like a boy and confesses in such funny, innocent ways how overhead and toes in love he is. But he is not the least spoony. There is the most perfect affection and confidence between us. I'm not sure what being spoony is. <laughs> but he wasn't spoony. They married in 1852 at St. Andrew's Church in Corbridge. And when they married, Josephine was 24 and George was 33. And when the butlers returned from their honeymoon, they set up house together in Oxford because George had uh, just got a new job as a public examiner for schools at Oxford University. Josephine always saw herself as a Methodist Though out of loyalty to George, she always attended the Church of England services with him. It seems that Josephine and George worked together on many academic projects in those early years. They studied Italian together. They worked on books together. Uh, She drew maps for George's geography lectures, 
Uh, George Butler is credited by some as introducing the study of geography into Oxford University and also into secondary schools. Their relationship throughout their marriage was extremely close. The Butlers were to have four children, George, Stanley, Charles and Evangeline, or Eva. And living in Oxford, the Butlers decided that they had to follow Christ rather than the world. And in two incidents, the couple uh, took a step which marked them out from scandalised Oxford opinion. George's attitude to this was one of complete indifference. He felt that it was important to do what was right rather than to be popular. The first incident concerned a case of an Oxford don who had seduced a very young girl and made her pregnant. Josephine wanted to bring a sense of the crime to the young man that he had committed against the girl. Josephine tackled the academic authorities. What were they going to do? But they wanted the case hushed up. The girl was stigmatized and deserted and in severe financial straits, but the wealthy Don carried on as if nothing had happened. The second incident, which the couple scandalized popular Oxford opinion, concerned the case of a young mother in Newgate Prison who was sentenced for the murder of her illegitimate child. Now, George suggested that they write to the chaplain of the prison about her, and Josephine went to see her. George then suggested that, that when the girl was released, she should come and live with them to help in the household. And this she did, and she served loyally and devotedly in the Butler household for many years. Now, the girl was the first of many to be welcomed into the Butler's home. In 1857, George accepted the post of vice-principal of Charlton College for boys. George had just failed to become the professor of Latin at Oxford, uh, but another reason for moving was that Josephine's health was suffering because of the Oxford damp air. A med medical specialist uh, advised Josephine that she must be taken away from Oxford. So all in all, the move to Cheltenham was a good move and suited them well. And Jane Jordan, in her excellent biography uh, of Josephine Butler, notes that Josephine was utterly contented in her domestic role. She writes, Josephine's home life was merry, due largely to her husband's boyish sense of fun, and she also had a great deal of fun bringing up her boys. Josephine's illness returned. She was to fight poor health at various stages throughout the rest of her life. Josephine said that when she was 18, she broke a blood vessel in her young, uh, lungs, and she seems to have had quite a problem coughing up blood uh, throughout her life. Then, in August uh, 1864, a terrible event was to happen, which was to scar Josephine for the rest of her life. Her little daughter, Eva, had an accident. She fell from the banister at the top of the hall stairs down to the stone floor below, and she remained unconscious for three hours and then she died. Josephine was to tell her son Stanley when he was an adult that for 25 years she woke up every day thinking about Eva's accident. Josephine knew that her little girl had often asked about heaven. Even on that day she was talking to Josephine about heaven or talking to the governess about heaven. And they believed in God's providential care. And it was a heavy blow for Josephine and George, but it was one which strengthened their faith. And Josephine was to write about this. Do the words accident or chance properly find a place in the vocabulary of those who have placed themselves and those dear to them 
in a special manner under the daily providential care of a loving God. Here entered into the heart of our grief the intellectual difficulty, the moral perplexity and dismay, which are not the least terrifying of the phantoms which haunt the valley of the shadow of death. That dark passage through which some toil only to emerge into a hopeless and final denial of the divine goodness, the complete bankruptcy of faith, and others by the mercy of God, through a still deeper experience into a yet firmer trust in his unfailing love. Josephine's illness got worse, undoubtedly affected by her daughter's death, and she was advised to take a holiday. She went to see her sister in Italy, and she nearly died on the return journey. Now, throughout 1865, Josephine suffered what she called a long drought of the soul. She was drawn into prayer, and the Lord laid on her heart to pray for those who suffered, and in particular to pray for poor young girls who suffered as a result of a life of prostitution. And Josephine wrote in her spiritual diary, I long to have a hundred voices that with all of them I might pray without ceasing that Christ will come quickly and deliver forever the poor groaning world, slaves from all their woes, the victims also and slaves of lust in our land, the poor women who are driven as sheep to the slaughter into the slave market of London. We are all involved in the guilt of society, in the destruction of in the innocence, in the denial of happiness to the young, of purity to children. So that is the way in which her experience was leading her in prayer. Now in 1866, the butlers began a new life in Liverpool. George was appointed the headmaster of Liverpool College, a school which took 800 pupils. And the school became one of the top schools in the country. Josephine developed a great desire to help those whose pain was keener than her own. And she believed that she could look afflicted people in the face and say, I understand I, too, have suffered. Now, at the suggestion of a local Baptist minister, Josephine visited the local workhouse, and she found that she had a natural way of speaking with the women there. Some of them had been prostitutes, and one thing led to another. Very soon, prostitutes dying of disease were invited into her home to stay. And the first woman that they took in was Mary, who was dying of consumption. And George went up one day uh, to read the Bible to her. He began to talk to her about Jesus Christ, her saviour, when she stopped him and said, Oh, sir, you need not tell me about Jesus Christ. I know him, for I have seen him. And George asked her, How so? Mary replied, Sir, you have brought me to your own beautiful home. You have treated me as if I was your own daughter, as if I had never done anything wrong. That is what I mean. I have seen Jesus. And that was the effect they were to have on the women they brought into their home. Mary was the first of many uh, prostitutes to embrace faith in Christ in the butler's home. And Josephine decided to expand her work. A home was not big enough, so they rented a property nearby and set up their own refuge. Uh, a local doctor was able to give his services for free, and the, the rented property accommodated 13 women at any one time. Josephine said that she had only two methods of raising money. Praying, which she said was the best way, and personal application to wealthy individuals, particularly young and married men of means. Josephine said that she welcomed any gifts, however small, or contributions down to a shilling. 
And the whole thing was very difficult because uh, the butlers actually heavily supported the whole enterprise themselves. But the money came in. Now, one day in 1866, Josephine was reading the Times. And she was reading about a debate in the House of Commons, a debate to extend something called the Contagious Diseases Acts. And the Acts horrified her. Under the legislation, a system of licensed prostitution was introduced. It was introduced in 11 designated ports and garrison towns. And any woman suspected on the streets of being a prostitute was required to undergo a medical examination or face imprisonment. And diseased prostitutes were also imprisoned. Special police who didn't wear a uniform were employed to enforce the act. Now, Josephine had been so deeply immersed in her own grief that she had missed completely the introduction of the 1864 Contagious Diseases Act. And she was later to discover that Florence Nightingale had battled in vain to stop the legislation going through. But that was in 1864 when she was uh, immersed in grief. But in 1866, the act was further extended. It did away with a need for a magistrate's hearing before an infected woman was imprisoned for six months. All that was needed was the sig uh, signature of a doctor. And this act also introduced periodical examinations over the period of a year for any woman the police believed was a common prostitute. And one of the problems was that many women uh, who were taken in and locked up were not in fact prostitutes at all. When Josephine read the newspaper report, she realized that uh, she knew all about the system because she had seen it in France. She'd seen it in Paris. It was the same system. The government was very worried that so many soldiers had venereal disease and they couldn't do their job as a soldier because they were in hospital suffering from VD. And some of them never recovered. Some of them died. And the Lancet reported... Uh, that, in, uh, that at any one time, a fifth of the army was in hospital suffering from VD uh, for an average stay of three weeks. That was in 1858. Six years later, in 1864, one in four soldiers in the army had VD. And in some regiments, it was much higher. The government's solution was the hygienic control of prostitutes. It appeared that all respectable medical opinion agreed. The police also concurred. The Contagious Diseases Acts sought to ensure that there was, in the words of the government, a clean supply of hygienic prostitutes for men to use. Now, there was increasing agitation all over the country. There was growing alarm at the brutality of the examinations. There was concern that many ordinary women walking the streets were being set upon by the secret police and made to undergo the examinations. Now, in 1869, the Contagious Diseases Acts were extended still further to another six towns, and the period of imprisonment was upped for infected women from six months to nine months. Now, the possibility of extending the legislation to the whole of the nation was now being openly discussed. So many people were very worried about this, and there was a campaign meeting uh, held in Bristol on the 30th of September, 1869. And after that meeting, Josephine was written to with a request that she take up the leadership of the campaign. 
she was well known for her work uh, with prostitutes. Now, one of the greatest difficulties in challenging the legislation was the fact that prostitution was simply never talked about in polite society. It would simply be indecent for a man, let alone a woman, to talk about prostitution. Josephine knew that leading the campaign to repeal the Contagious Diseases Acts would be a fearful task to undertake. And for a period of three months, she pondered long and hard about whether God was truly calling her to take up this request. In her diary, Josephine wrote, It is now many weeks since I knew that Parliament had sanctioned this great wickedness, and I have not yet put on my armour, nor am I yet ready. Nothing so wears me out, body and soul, as anger, fruitless anger. And this thing fills me with such an anger, even a hatred, that I fear to face it. And Josephine knew that she had to talk to George. And she wanted to do this in a very careful way. So what she did was she wrote down all her thoughts and she handed him uh, everything written down on a note. Josephine said, It seemed to me cruel to have to tell him of the call and to say to him that I must try and stand in the breach. My heart was shaken by the foreshadowing of what I knew he would suffer. I went to him one evening when he was alone, all the household having retired to rest. I recollect the painful thoughts that seemed to me throng that passage from my room to his study. I hesitated and leaned cheek against his closed door. And as I leaned, I prayed. Then I went in and gave him something I had written and left him. I did not see him to the next day. He looked pale and troubled and for some days was silent. Husband George had been involved with her already in looking after prostitutes. He knew uh, the public debate. He knew the cost of the undertaking. He thought about it very carefully. And then he said to Josephine, Go and God be with you. And Josephine said that she could never have accepted the call without her husband's support. And this he gave unstintingly in the years ahead. Now, I want to look now at some of the organization that Josephine was involved in setting up and the arguments as well that were used. Now, the National Association for the Repeal of the Contagious Diseases Acts was formed after the Bristol meeting, but it only permitted men to be members. So Josephine, therefore, set up the Ladies' National Association for Women. And there was a regular publication called The Shield. And uh, that was a weekly um, newsletter that came out. Quite incredible technology that was used then. Every week there was news uh, from the organization. So there were two great societies which fought together very closely for the repeal of the Contagious Diseases Acts. And they employed some staff, but most of the work was done by volunteers. And we know what some of the arguments were because uh, on the 1st of January, 1870, a solemn women's protest was published. It had eight arguments against the Contagious Diseases Acts. And I just want to look at four of them. These were the arguments they used. First, that the system in the Acts amounted to the state regulation of vice. Josephine called it legalized harlotry. The protest stated, the path of evil is made more easy to our sons. As moral restraint is withdrawn, the moment the state recognizes 
and provides convenience for the practice of vice, which it thereby declares to be necessary. That was the first argument. The second argument was that the police were given absolute control over a woman's reputation and freedom. There was imprisonment without trial. Third, the acts leave unpunished those who are the main cause of vice, namely the men, whilst at the same time punishing, in a most degrading way, those who are the main victims of vice, namely the women. Fourth, the acts could never work by tackling only one sex, namely the women. Josephine was a very capable arguer. She deployed moral arguments, statistics, and constitutional arguments. And given her background, Josephine was no stranger to political debate. Like her father, she was a lifelong supporter of the Liberal Party, and a large proportion in those days voted Liberal. And certainly, uh, evangelicals in those days voted Liberal. Certainly there were many more Liberal MPs than Conservatives who supported repeal. And Gladstone, the high church leader of the Liberal Party, though, he never did support Josephine's campaign, although personally he was very concerned about uh, the plight of prostitutes. For a woman, Josephine did an amazing thing. She spoke at public meetings. This is a cartoon of her speaking at a public meeting. Even more amazingly, she actually spoke about a subject which was a complete taboo. In the first year alone, Josephine Butler traveled 3,700 miles and organized 99 public meetings. She was greatly helped by two faithful friends who were both later to become liberal MPs, James Stewart, a Cambridge graduate, and also Henry Wilson, a Sheffield industrialist. And the widening of the voting franchise in 1868 to all men in the boroughs, and in 1880 to all men in the counties, meant that there were new political opportunities for those who were campaigning for repeal. And Josephine's leadership of the campaign was to be spectacularly vindicated by her tactics at three by-elections. And the first by-election she fought was in the Newark by-election of 1870. Of course, she couldn't stand because she was a woman, uh, but uh, she had a candidate standing for her campaign group. The Liberal Party put up Sir Henry Storks, who was a former governor of Malta. He believed uh, that the prostitution should be recognized as a necessity, and he wanted the acts extended to the whole country. He believed also that the acts should be extended to cover soldiers' wives, and he believed that they should be subject to regular examinations. So he was uh, someone who was really up for extending the acts. It was a safe liberal seat, but the abolitionists placarded the town and gained support from the trade union. Some members of the trade union actually had a vote. And Storks withdrew on the day of the election, and Josephine's butler's candidate was then returned to represent Newark. That was the Newark by-election, so they won that. And then uh, Sir Henry Storks, having withdrawn from Newark, thought he'd fight again another by-election in the same year in Colchester. And the repealers had once again took to the streets distributing handbills throughout the town, explaining uh, Sir Henry Stork's views on prostitution. This is, in a way, uh, campaign techniques which had never been used uh, before on any issue. And, in, in fact, 
it was said that some of the later political campaigns actually adopted some of her techniques. The intention of the campaigners in Colchester was to split the Liberal vote, and it succeeded. Brothel owners, though, stirred up a huge mob to oppose Josephine. They put up posters on town walls with an exact description of Josephine's dress so that she could be attacked. But Josephine outsmarted them. She decided to change her dress every day. And at night, a mob surrounded the place where she was staying, and she had to be smuggled out to safety. That was the first of many attempts on her life. But when the result of the election came, Storks lost heavily. The Conservative candidate won with a majority of 500. So all of this was going on. It was beginning uh, to get into the press, and the press didn't like it at all. Uh, they were very anti what the campaigners were doing. The government realized that was, there was a political debate building up, and they thought they had to respond, and they did what many governments do. They set up a royal commission. It reported in 1871, and the commission was deeply divided. There were six minority reports. The majority of the members backed the acts, stating there is no comparison to be drawn between prostitutes and men who consort with them. With one, the sex of the offence is committed as a matter of gain. With the other, it is an irregular indulgence of a natural impulse. And that was the thinking in those days. Men weren't to blame at all. They couldn't be blamed, but the women were very heavily stigmatised. But gradually, the repealers' arguments were getting through. Very significantly, the Royal Commission recommended that the age of consent for girls should be raised from 12, as it was then, to 14. That was just a recommendation. And at that time, the only laws which effectively protected young people was the age of consent. Above the age of 12, a young girl was presumed to have consented to an act of sexual intercourse. The word of an adult, in any case, was implicitly believed. And there was also extensive police corruption which protected the brothel trade. Once raped and brutalized, abducted young girls were effectively imprisoned in their life of prostitution. Obtaining support for the raising of the age of consent was an important step forward for the campaigners. That was good news. But seven members of the commission said that the Contagious Diseases Act should be extended to cover the whole country. And the government decided to act on that recommendation. And a bill was introduced by the Home Secretary, Henry Austin Bruce. Bruce's bill was introduced on the 13th of February, 1872. The commission was one step forward and two steps back, just like the bill. The bill proposed that the age of consent for girls should be raised from 12 to 14, and that the Contagious Diseases Acts would be repealed. But this repeal was, in fact, uh, only technical. Significantly, the police powers to arrest women on suspicion were extended across the whole country. Now, uh, some of the campaigners were very keen to see the government proposal to raise the age of consent from 12 to 14. Others, like Josephine, uh, felt that the whole thing was a compromise and that she couldn't support it. And the campaigners were very much divided amongst themselves. They had a meeting about it, and the final motion they passed at the meeting was equivocal. 
that it declared that several clauses in the bill were immoral, but it merely called for the bill to be amended rather than to be opposed. By April that year, in 1872, the National Association had come round to Josephine's point of view. And before the end of August, the campaign was to fight another election in Pontefract. Now, in those days, uh, if a member of parliament uh, was promoted to the government, or if his government responsibilities changed, he had to go back to his constituency and seek a fresh mandate. So uh, you, you had one, you were elected as an MP, then you had to be elected again as an MP and as a member of the government. And Hugh Childers was the first Lord of the Admiralty in the Liberal government. And he had issued orders enforcing the Contagious Diseases Acts in naval ports. And he wanted to seek a re-election because his government responsibilities changed. And his own Pontefract con uh, constituency included a newly designated military depot. So it was very significant for the repealers. Unfortunately... The campaigners seemed to be caught on, uh, caught on the hop. They failed to put up a candidate. But they still went ahead with a campaign to dent the majority of the sitting MP. And with very short notice, Josephine was telegrammed and asked to attend the campaign, which she did. And handbills uh, were printed by Childers one morning saying that he wasn't going to meet those who opposed his point of view. And because he put out the handbills in the morning, Josephine's campaign responded in the afternoon. They printed a handbill saying, he is afraid to meet us. And they called on the women of the town to assemble for a meeting. And it was quite impressive the way in which they turned around these, these leaflets uh, with just a few hours responding to uh, the leaflets from the other side. Now, the problem was the repealers' meetings were being broken up by mobs. There was also the problem that the repealers found difficulty in finding anyone who would actually rent them a hall to have a meeting. And in order to increase the likelihood that a mob wouldn't turn up, the repealers decided to organise their meetings at the same time as Childers. Now, only men could vote. But Josephine's formidable campaigning tactic was to reach the men through their wives. She therefore held many meetings for women. And I'd now like to quote from Josephine's own account of the women's meeting, which was held during the Pontefract by-election. It's quite a long quote, but I think it gives a very strong flavour of the sort of thing that the campaigners were up against. This is in Josephine's own words. It's from her personal reminiscences of a great crusade. Josephine said, At last we found a large hayloft over an empty room on the outskirts of the town. We could only ascend to it by means of a kind, a kind of ladder leading through a trap door in the floor. However, the place was large enough to hold a good meeting and was soon filled. Mr. Stewart had run on it in advance and paid for the room in his own name and had looked in to see that it all was all right. He found the floor strewn with cayenne pepper in order to make it impossible for us to speak. And there were some bundles of straw in the empty room below. He got a poor woman to help him, and with a bucket of water, they managed to drench the floor and swept together cayenne pepper. Still, when we arrived, it was very unpleasant for eyes and throat. We began our meeting with prayer, and the women were listening to our words with increasing determination never to forsake the good cause when a smell of burning was perceived. 
Smoke began to curl up through the floor and a threatening noise was heard below. The bundles of straw beneath had, to be set on, had been set on fire and the smoke much annoyed us. Then to our horror, looking down the room to the trapdoor entrance, we saw appearing head after head of men with countenances full of fury. There was no possible exit for us, the windows being too much high above the ground. And we women were gathered into one end of the room like a flock of sheep surrounded by wolves. Few of these men, we learned, were Yorkshire people. They were led on by two persons whose dress was that of a gentleman. It is very difficult to describe in words what followed. It was a time which required strong faith and calm courage. Mrs. Wilson and I stood in front of the company of women, side by side. She whispered in my ear, now is the time to trust in God. Do not let us fear. And the comforting sense of the divine presence came to us both. It was not personal violence we feared so much as the mental pain inflicted by the rage, profanity, and obscenity of the men, of their words and their threats. The language was hideous. They shook their fists in our face with a volley of oaths. This continued for some time, and we had no defense or means of escape. Their chief rage was directed against Mrs. Wilson and me. We understood their language, that it was certain among them that they had a personal and vested interest in the evil thing we were opposing. It is clear that they understood that their craft was in danger. And in other words, they were involved with the brothel trade. And she goes on to describe how at last help had arrived. Uh, three, two or three helmeted policemen uh, whose head appeared one by one through the trap door. Now we thought we're safe, but no. These were metropolitans who had come from London for the occasion of our election. They simply looked at the scene, and with a cynical smile they left without an attempt to defend us. And eventually uh, uh, they got through, and uh, uh, they got through back to their hotel, and they did convene a meeting, and people were scandalized at the violence of those who opposed her. And that was one of the meetings, and she was actually to hold 16 years' worth of meetings. Now, when the voting was announced in the Colchester by-election, one-third of the 2,000 uh, electorate had abstained, and Childers' uh, majority was cut from 20, 233 to 80. And this created a national sensation in the press. Newspapers vigorously denounced the repealers. It was one of the few occasions during the 16 years when there was actually press coverage. After the Pontefract by-election, Josephine and her fellow campaigners set up new organizations to influence the parliamentary candidates. They made the mistake there was no candidate at Pontefract. That was never to happen again. So they set up a new electoral machine. Uh, and the aim of this electoral machine was, in Joseph, Josephine's words, to make these fellows afraid of us. So that's what they, they were doing. And this new organization, though, came too late for the 1874 general election. The, uh, the liberals lost power and the conservatives uh, gained control of the government. But in 1874, a very significant event occurred. This was to be the biggest um, coverage that they'd received in the press. It was an astonishing thing to happen. James Stansfield, a renowned liberal party politician, decided to resign from the front bench to help repeal the Contagious Diseases Acts. Although he wasn't a Christian himself, he faithfully supported Josephine in her campaign. Now let's just talk about the long campaign to repeal the Contagious Diseases Acts. 
1875, a backbench MP had introduced a private member's bill to raise the age of consent uh, from 12 to 14. Uh, that was recommended some four years earlier by the Royal Commission. Unfortunately, the Commons decided that the age of consent should only be increased to 13. Now, throughout their lives, the Butlers would often take holidays abroad. Both uh, Josephine and George were capable linguists, and Josephine's sister uh, lived in Naples, and she often went over there to visit her sister. Uh, whilst she was on holiday, she often had the habit of uh, organising a few campaign meetings as well. Many other nations were implementing legislation exactly the same uh, that we had in Britain and France uh, to regulate prostitution. Now, the Ladies' National Association asked Josephine to open a correspondence to start writing to an anti-regulationists from every European nation. And she did this, and she also went to see a lot of uh, people who were concerned about this and made many friends in Europe. And as a result of all of this, a series of international congresses were convened. And the first meeting was held in 1875, and in 1877 there was to be an international congress uh, in Geneva. And this was really uh, a wonderful opportunity for sharing evidence and giving scientific papers. Uh, it became increasingly clear from uh, people talking uh, to one another that the buying and selling of young girls was happening on an organized basis across countries. And this was to become known as the white slave trade. Now, such was their expenditure on their rescue work whilst they were in Liverpool that the butlers were unable to save anything uh, for their retirement. And when George did decide to retire in 1882, they were very concerned about how they would pay their bills. And unbeknown to them, Henry Wilson had contacted their friends to set up a fund to help them have an income in retirement. And they read of the gift, uh, and their hearts were filled to overflowing with wonder and gratitude. They also had more good news. Gladstone, the Prime Minister, wrote to George. They, Gladstone knew the butlers personally. He wrote to George uh, to say that he had personally proposed uh, to Queen Victoria that he be appointed Canon of Winchester Cathedral, and he was. So after 12 years in Liverpool, the butlers moved to Winchester. Josephine was now to be much nearer Parliament, and her most demanding years were still ahead of her. Now, a national day of fasting and prayer was called early in 1883, and this was heavily advertised in the national press. Then in February, an MP, Charles Hopwood, attempted to move a motion that this House disapproves of the compulsory examination of women under the Contagious Diseases Acts. And several large prayer meetings were held at the very same time. Josephine had successfully lobbied MPs for the right of ladies to hear the debate. They weren't thought... It wasn't thought fitting that ladies should hear the debate, but she managed to get that overturned. She went up to the ladies' gallery in the House of Commons at 4 o'clock so that she could relay the news of the prayer meeting where 200 ladies had gathered, kneeling, kneeling down to pray in a large room in Westminster Palace Hotel. Now, in the event, uh, Charles Hopwood's motion was obstructed by supporters of the Contagious Diseases Acts. Uh, they had spun out the earlier parliamentary business so there was no time for the motion to be heard. 
but an effective message was getting through to constituents. One MP said that he'd received 500 letters in one day urging him to vote for appeal. Now, after the motion was blocked, 10 sympathetic MPs immediately put their names into a ballot to secure time for a motion. Now, in the event, it was James Stansfeld who won the ballot, and the debate was held on the 20th of April, 1833. Stansfeld gave a very powerful speech, and the division was called just after midnight. And Josephine sat in the ladies' gallery, and the house was completely silent. And as the MPs emerged from having voted, Josephine looked at the expression on Stansfield's face, and she saw that it was lighted up by such joy and surprise at the great and complete victory won after so many years of hard conflict, sorrow, and disappointment. A huge cheer went up when the vote was read out. They had won by 182 to 110. Josephine ran down the stairs from the ladies' gallery, and Stansfield was there waiting for her with tears streaming down his face. And, uh, of course, then as now, the problem was not the House of Lords, it was the House of Commons. And as a result of the victory, uh, the operation of the Acts was immediately suspended. The press said that it was the death blow for the Acts, and so it proved. And the government attempted to salvage some parts of the legislation, but a government uh, general election intervened in 1885. Gladstone lost power, and the Conservative administration was back in again, headed by Lord Salisbury. Now, in that year, and in that election, great efforts were made to obtain promises from the candidates that they would vote for repeal. And a large number of repeal candidates were elected, and so, three years later, after winning the motion and the acts being suspended, James Stansfeld moved the motion calling for the repeal immediately of the acts. And he won that motion by 114 votes. Two days later, he introduced his own bill, and that received uh, assent very, very speedily indeed. So they'd won their great campaign. It took them 16 years to repeal the Contagious Diseases Acts. 900 public meetings were organized. 520 books and pamphlets on prostitution were published. And well over 17,000 petitions with over 2.5 million signatories had been collected. So it was a great campaign. But while all this was going on, Josephine was already working on her next campaign and at the same time setting up a new refuge for prostitutes in Winchester. Now, one of her uh, prostitutes that she was uh, very friendly with was Rebecca Jarrett. Uh, she'd become a Christian, and she'd had a very sad childhood. Her mother had rented, out, uh, men, uh, rented her out to men as a prostitute from the age of 12, and she'd left home at 15 or 16, we're not sure, and lived with a succession of lovers whilst managing brothels. And her speciality was procuring girls to work in brothels. And Rebecca knew all about buying girls from their parents, just for a few pounds, or abducting them from public parks. And after coming to faith, Rebecca proved to be a very effective witness to other prostitutes. Uh, she ran a, a refuge uh, in Winchester that Josephine set up. She organized daily prayer meetings and Bible studies for the nine other ex-prostitutes who lived there. And every Sunday, she invited uh, women from the other brothels in Winchester to come to tea. And she also ran a nightly outreach work. So she was very busy in the Lord's service. And Josephine knew 
that uh, this white slave trade that Rebecca had been involved in herself had to be stopped. We're going to be hearing more about Rebecca in a moment. A key objective of Josephine's was to raise the age of consent from 13 to 16. And this had been backed by the House of Lords time and again, but every time the House of Commons had scuppered the move. And the campaigners also had a detailed raft of legislation uh, to prevent the abduction of children. So they knew exactly what they wanted. And one of the problems was that every time they faced the corruption uh, in high places. And the Jeffreys case uh, was, a, was a case in point. The campaigners were told, why don't you seek to enforce the law? So they thought, well, okay, we'll try and, and enforce the law. And Inspector Minahan from Scotland Yard was a keen supporter of Josephine's, uh, but his superiors saw that he was interested and decided to sack him for his stance against prostitution. You see that many, many police were on the take from the brothels that was involved in, they were involved in protecting their trade. Now, after he was sacked, uh, Inspector Minahan set up an investigation into Mrs. Jeffries in Chelsea. She was one of the leading brothel owners in London. Due to a providential accident, a letter to Mrs. Jeffries had been sent to the wrong address. Another Mrs. Jeffries in Chelsea opened the letter, which she thought was addressed to her. And the letter was from the King of Belgium. The letter was a request to buy a girl. And the letter was passed to the campaigners. On further investigation, it appeared that there was evidence that the King of Belgium bought around 100 virgins a year. Evidence was obtained showing that other clients of Mrs. Jeffreys included MPs, princes, dukes, and government ministers. Now, two Chelsea residents complained to the police about the brothel. Under the law, this would trigger a prosecution. Campaigners were looking forward with anticipation to the trial when all the evidence would come out in court. Unfortunately, when the case got to court, it was abruptly called to a halt by the magistrate. He had done a deal with Mrs. Jeffries. She pleaded guilty and was let off uh, with what was for her a token fine of £200. Uh, they found out that actually she got £800 from the King of, of, of Belgium alone, so 200 wasn't very much at all. And that was her fine, and she was let off after pleading guilty. Christians up and down the land were scandalized. They scented a conspiracy on the part of the rich and the powerful. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a clean supporter of Josephine. He preached against corruption in the judiciary on the 7th of June, 1885. And he said in his sermon, Deep is our shame when we know that our judges are not clear in this matter, but social purity has been put to the blush by magistrates of no mean degree. Yes, it is said that the courts of justice have lent themselves to the covering and hushing up of the iniquities of the great. Josephine was appalled that the press wouldn't publish any of the evidence against Mrs. Jeffreys and her clients. And she said that this led to, directly, the perpetuation of the most cruel and murderous tyranny against defenceless young children. So clearly, uh, the campaign had to go on on the age of consent. And Josephine teamed up with William Booth, who was, uh, sorry, Bramwell Booth, who was son of William Booth, 
the founder of the Salvation Army. He was, and she also teamed up with William Stead on the right there, who was the flamboyant editor of the Pall Mall Gazette, which was, uh, I suppose, the equivalent of the Daily Mail in those days, or perhaps a cross between the Daily Mail and the Sun. W.T. Stead was from the northeast of England. He'd actually been editor of the uh, Northern Echo. Stead had suggested that they set up a secret commission to investigate child prostitution. And they needed to approve a number of allegations. People weren't believing what was going on, and those who were in the, new, in, in the know were determined to keep the facts hushed up. They needed to prove, therefore, that children could be bought from their mothers, that so-called midwives uh, could operate to prove a girl's virginity and to provide drugs to stupefy the children whilst they were abducted and raped. Finally, there was an organized trade in girls from Britain to the continent. That's what they had to prove. And in July 1885, Josephine and her son Georgie dressed up in disguise and spent ten days walking the streets of London to gather evidence uh, on the crimes of the aristocracy, as Josephine put it. She posed as a brothel owner, and George posed as a client. And Georgie went to uh, high-class brothels buying children, and they actually spent a total of £100 buying children uh, during their ten days' investigation. Josephine saw... No problem with Rebecca Garrett meeting up with W.T. Stead. She'd been involved in the trade of buying children, and uh, she thought there was no problem with her meeting Stead. But unbeknown to her, Stead had actually asked Rebecca to help him show that a girl of 13 could be bought from their parents and smuggled onto the continent. Now, Rebecca was very reluctant to go back to all her old brothel contacts in order to help, but Stead prevailed upon her, and she agreed. Rebecca met up with uh, a procuress called Nancy Broughton, and for Nancy charged £44, and for £4 she arranged for Rebecca to meet Mrs. Armstrong, who agreed to sell her daughter Eliza for £1. And the Armstrongs had six children and lived in a slum. On the 3rd of June, the bargain was made. Uh, uh, Rebecca was... Uh, uh, took Eliza away, and she gave Mrs. Armstrong a pound. She promptly drank the proceeds. As part of Stead's plot, Eliza had to stay a night with Rebecca in a room uh, in a lodging house which was frequented by prostitutes. And within two days, the young girl, Eliza, who was only 13, was in Paris, uh, put into service with a Christian couple arranged by Bramwell Booth. So Stead showed that it was actually possible to to buy a girl of 13 and to smuggle her out of the country. Uh, that was what was going on. Girls of 13 were smuggled out of the country and uh, abducted to work in foreign brothels. Stead had all the evidence he needed. So on Saturday, the 4th of July, the Pall Mall Gazette announced that it was going to run a week's expose. And the uh, paper ran, Therefore, we say quite frankly today, that all those who are squeamish and all those who are prudish and all those who prefer to live in a fool's paradise of imaginary innocence and purity, selfish, selfishly oblivious to the horrible realities which torment those who are passed in the London inferno, would do well not to read the Pall Mall Gazette. And of course, that had 
precisely the opposite effect, which is what he intended. Stead promised an authentic record of unimpeachable facts, abominable, unutterable, and worse than fables yet have feigned or fear conceived. When publication day came on Monday the 6th of July, Stead's offices were besieged with people jostling for copies of the paper. The public reaction was extraordinary. Josephine had personally supplied much of the evidence, but Stead has also done his own research. He purchased girls personally. He purchased seven girls between the ages of 14 and 18. A prominent MP had offered to sell him virgins at £25 each. And a procuress told Stead that she had a regular order from a prominent London doctor. Three girls a fortnight from £5 to £7 each. So all of this was brought out in, in uh, the Palmar Gazette. And the story about Eliza also figured prominently. A child of 13 bought for £5. Now, for the purpose of the story, the, the name of Eliza was changed to Lily. And one or two other details were, were changed. Josephine was actually overjoyed that the upper classes were being exposed. Because by and large, that, they were the people who were using these brothels. Spontaneous public meetings were held all over the country. They were called indignation meetings. Uh, they were held in London, Newcastle, Plymouth, Sunderland, Jarrah and Liverpool, for example. Thousands of people attended them. And the government felt that it had to do something. On Monday, the, the 6th, was the first edition. By Thursday, the government had completely changed its view. They had decided and they announced that age of consent legislation was to be brought before the House of Commons. It was given a swift second reading and it sailed through all its stages and became law on the 10th of August, 1885. The age of consent for girls was raised from 13 to 16, the same law that we have today. But that wasn't all. The Attorney General's office had been forced to put into law and to write clauses implementing the entire demands of the campaigners. When the bill was passed, a whole raft of new laws were put on the statute book, and there they are. The new laws sought to protect children, and for the first time we had the phrase suppress brothels. It was a complete and total victory for the campaigners. Now, it's often said uh, that uh, all of this was done by Stead, just in the space of four days, four days press coverage. Certainly, the reporting was very important indeed, but it actually served as a trigger for a national outburst of pent-up indignation, which had been steadily growing, thanks to the work of Josephine Butler and her fellow campaigners. But when all the excitement had died down, there was to be a very nasty sting in the tail. The Attorney General uh, decided to get his revenge because Mrs. Armstrong, the mother of the girl who had sold her daughter, had cottoned on to the fact that the story was in fact not about Lily but about her daughter Eliza. Neighbours taunted her that Nancy Borton got four pounds and she'd only got one pound. Mrs. Armstrong was angry. She went to the police and she claimed that she hadn't consented to her daughter leaving the house. And the Attorney General decided that there had to be a prosecution. Revenge had to be wreaked on Stead. The Times 
and other newspapers were absolutely delighted. Uh, they sought for an opportunity to discredit the Pall Mall Gazette, whose sales were going rather well at the time. The good name of Britain's upper classes had been besmirched by Stead, and the Times had been campaigning for prosecution and was overjoyed when they succeeded. On the 2nd of September, prosecutions were brought against W.T. Stead, Rebecca Jarrett and Bramwell Booth for the assault and abduction of Eliza Armstrong without the agreement of her parents. A show trial followed in October, and the Attorney General personally conducted the prosecution, and Stead conducted his own defence. The verdict came out in November. Bramwell Booth was acquitted. Rebecca was given six months without hard labour. At six months in jail, Stead was sentenced to three months in jail. And the harshest sentence, though, was given to Rebecca because she had given the wrong addresses for some of her former associates. I think she probably was afraid because um, they'd actually already been hassling her because of her involvement with Josephine Butler. So she didn't give the authorities the right addresses, and that was all exposed in court. And she also gave other confused evidence, which prosecuting counsel uh, was easily to take advantage of. The jury were in a very great difficulty. They believed that Rebecca instead had committed a technical misdemeanor, but they had acted entirely from good motives. That's what they said to the judge. But it later emerged that Mr. Armstrong wasn't Eliza's father at all. Mrs. Armstrong had clearly consented to the sale of her daughter. The whole case hinged on the fact that the husband, Mr. Armstrong, hadn't consented. But Mr. Armstrong wasn't her husband. He was just her lover. Mr. Armstrong wasn't the father at all. And if he'd been exposed as a fraud, the prosecution case would have collapsed. But it didn't. Stead always uh, insisted that he should personally take the blame. He made three serious mistakes, though. Firstly, he got the law wrong. The agreement of both parents was needed, not just Mrs. Armstrong. Secondly, he'd put Rebecca, really, in a very, very difficult position indeed. And thirdly, he'd changed some facts of the story. It's no wonder that some people believe that Stead is the founder of modern journalism. People are, uh, people are still arguing over the rights and wrongs of what Stead did. Josephine stood by Rebecca. She had many doubts about Stead. Uh, she thought he, he had an unstable character and was vain, but she stood publicly by Stead. Stead seems to have been treated remarkably well whilst in prison. He confessed, never had I a pleasanter holiday, a more charming season of repose. Uh, despite uh, this, uh, Stead's Christmas card played up his martyrdom, greetings from Holloway Jail. Eliza was uh, returned by the Salvation Army to her parents, and Rebecca, after her release, went to work for the Salvation Army. She stayed a believer throughout her life and worked for the Salvation Army. But Stead wrote a book rather arrogantly entitled My First Imprisonment. He asked the governor who clearly took a shine to him, whether he could keep his prison uniform. Uh, the governor agreed. And on the anniversary of his conviction, every year, Stead would dress up in his prison clothes and commute up to London to work on the train. <laughs> Stead certainly uh, attended very many uh, prayer meetings 
during the campaigns. But it seems unlikely that he himself was a believer. Certainly William Booth didn't think so. And uh, how could Stead die? Well, he died on the Titanic in 1912. So quite a character. Uh, but it was great uh, support to Josephine Butler. Well, the age of consent then, that was the story, how we have got the age of consent at 16 and how the Contagious Diseases Acts were abolished. George uh, served as canon of Winchester Cathedral. He had faithfully supported Josephine in all her campaigns and he had spoken at many meetings personally. Uh, George died in 1890 and for the rest of her life, she tended to wear a widow's black dress. And after several months, after the bereavement, she slowly began to restart her campaigning work. And uh, she'd won practically everything there was to win uh, in Britain uh, in her campaigns. The age of consent had been raised. The Contagious Diseases Act had been repealed. A whole raft of legislation was enforced. But uh, there were still problems throughout the British Empire and in many countries in Europe. And that was her work after her husband died. But one consequence uh, of George dying was that Josephine was homeless uh, because he'd always lived either in a schoolhouse or a clergy house. And so in the years after her husband's death, Josephine moved between a number of temporary addresses in London and uh, she lived then with her sister, uh, then with her three sons, each of them. This is a picture of a family gathering in 1887, a rather formal picture with Josephine there on the right. In 1901 she resigned from all public duties. She was too ill. And then in 1903, she moved back once again to Wooler. And there she wrote this book, The Personal Reminiscences of a Great Crusade. And uh, much of it actually focuses on her work uh, to further the cause of the abolition of Contagious Diseases Acts in the countries of Europe. Josephine knew that a great spiritual revival uh, was underway, and she spoke about this. But even though that was true, even though many of the working classes had been converted, there was an establishment or an elite which fused, refused to budge. All her life, Josephine fought against fashionable opinion, fashionable experts in medicine and the police. And we need to do this today. She stood up to the entire medical establishment. Josephine, along with her courageous doctors who supported her, broke the consensus amongst doctors into smithereens, and it took 16 years to do. When the Contagious Diseases Acts were introduced, 26.1% of soldiers had VD in any one year. When the acts were suspended in 1883, it was 26%. No change at all. In fact, there is every reason to believe that the rate would have fallen but for the legislation. Because a Royal Commission reported in 1913 that the disease rates in the Army and Navy fell after the repeal of the Contagious Diseases Act. In fact, they plummeted. Uh, they plummeted from 26% to 6%. And during the First World War, only 4% of soldiers had VD. Now, uh, tolerance zones for prostitution were outlawed in 1886, thanks to Josephine Butler. Now there are calls by experts to bring them back in again. And they already operate in some cities. I think if Josephine had been alive today, I suspect she would have been a very fierce critic 
of damage limitation or harm reduction approaches where young people are told how to take drugs safely or how to have safe sex. Josephine died in December 1906. Uh, she was buried in a simple grave outside Kirk Newton Parish Church uh, near Wooler. After her death, a small plaque was erected over her doorway of her house, which still stands, I believe it's in Queen's Road in Wooler. And the fruits of her labours continued long after she died. Most nations in Europe repealed their Contagious Diseases Acts. Josephine Butler was a great believer in prayer. Those who knew her said that she loved the Bible. Uh, Josephine, I believe, is an outstanding example to all of us uh, of Christian courage, determination, and faithfulness. Uh, she was a robust campaigner precisely because she was a compassionate carer. Thank you. Are there any questions or comments that people like to, to make? Is it gentleman here, John? <coughs> um, I speak as campaigns coordinator for Tear Fund in the northeast of England, and I would like to ask uh, our speaker today uh, the whole matter of dealing in matters which relate to the moral law is obviously rather different to matters which relate, shall we say, to evangelism and so on, uh, where it's quite clear uh, that Mrs. Butler uh, engaged in common cause with those who didn't share her faith, and this was true of Wilberforce and others. Yet, undoubtedly, this sets up tensions, and one encounters tensions whilst doing this. Do you have any comments for us, uh, any helpful insights uh, from your illustrious subject? that help us in that regard. Josephine uh, was very keen on prayer, and uh, she would hold prayer meetings, and some of her supporters couldn't go to them. Um, I think the conflict, uh, actually in that time, was you had on the one side, you had some evangelicals who thought that the law for the ungodly should be quite different than the law for, for believers, and they wouldn't be involved with her. They saw that that was an entirely separate world and uh, you just let the, the state decide what it wanted to do. Um, so she did have conflicts with that and she said that the great spiritual revivals um, actually hadn't necessarily helped because um, some people believed that uh, you should just let the, the law stay as it was. You shouldn't seek to, to change it. And she always argued that if you become a believer then your life should change and you should seek to change society. But she did have conflicts as well with people in her campaign who weren't, uh, weren't Christian believers. Uh, some of them were Unitarians and um, others as well, Roman Catholics. Uh, she, she didn't necessarily have the same faith at all on some of the particular issues, but um, she worked with them. Um, but I think that um, she was very fortunate that she uh, was a leader and she took other people with her, and uh, she sought to break uh, consensus. She, she had the whole Church of England against her. Her, father, uh, her husband spoke at the uh, church assembly and uh, was shouted down. And uh, So she had to build her own campaign, really, and uh, she didn't get a lot of help from the institutional church. And uh, so she had to, to build that, and she just 
sought to do it through argument, sought to argue what was actually best for everyone. And I think that's really, um, uh, that's the way in which Christians should campaign and the, argue what actually is best for everyone. And she knew because she had been personally involved. I think that uh, you don't have to be involved in personal care necessarily. If you're involved in a public issue, you don't necessarily need to be involved in personal care. But she was. She knew all about the things that she was campaigning for. She saw the, the hard edge of the policies and the way it influenced uh, uh, young girls. And uh, so that, that she redoubled her efforts and she had to argue for what she thought was right and uh, she had to break a consensus. And that was very hard and very lonely. And I think one of the things that she uh, did do, though, was she was so determined when others had uh, given up, when others wanted to compromise, uh, she wouldn't compromise. And uh, I think we need people like that today. And I, I did think of the analogy of Lady Young, who, who would never uh, compromise, even though many were offered to her. I think we need people like that in our society today. They may not actually win, uh, but we do actually need them. You said there at the beginning, Colin, that um, uh, she was well known amongst uh, feminists. And I understand she's also well-known amongst trade unionists. But why is this woman of such commitment, courage, dedication, and Christian standing not well-known amongst Christians? That's a very good question. Um, the, uh, I'm sure that uh, Josephine's books are on undergraduate courses uh, at universities because uh, they're still in print. And uh, the, uh, maybe she had a better press after she died. Uh, than when she was living. Um, but uh, she was uh, uh, someone who even Marxists thought she was marvellous um, because uh, she stood up for the working class. That's pity about their Christian faith, but they thought what she did was marvellous. Um, I think one of the reasons why uh, Christians don't know about it, partly because of the subject, it's fairly unpalatable, partly because um, she... Um, uh, it was still controversial. There were still people who didn't agree with what she did and uh, didn't agree with her stand. Um, I suppose amongst the trade unionists, they did agree and, and uh, there, there didn't tend to be a division amongst feminists. Although, I have to say, a feminist, um, the, the word now is, has a completely different meaning to what it had to people like Millicent Fawcett who, who fought for uh, the right for females to vote. Um, so I think that um, uh, they uh, were totally with her and she forged uh, great alliances. But she had this problem, I think, in the church uh, where you had people who couldn't apply their faith to public questions and uh, thought that the ungodly, well, let them uh, uh, you know, get on with what they're doing. And uh, in fact, Josephine was absolutely exasperated with some of the... Um, reform people in uh, Geneva who seem to take the view, well, we want our sons protected, so we better have these laws. And uh, she was absolutely exasperated. And I think that's one of the reasons that some people uh, didn't actually agree with what she did. And, uh, but I think uh, another problem perhaps is that the fact that uh, in the first few years after her, her death, uh, she actually requested that no biography... Will be, would be written about her. Fortunately, many have been. 
Uh, but many of them actually hushed up her Christian commitment. She was such a heroine on the part of uh, the, uh, the suffragettes that they tended to uh, get a lot of writing and uh, then other people who wrote really didn't get to understand her Christian faith. They really didn't understand it. And I think that's, that's part of the problem. That there isn't a good Christian biography. The closest to it uh, is by Jane Jordan, I think. Uh, so maybe that will uh, help redress the balance.